want to speak to you today on this subject, the promise from Acts chapter 3, verse 17 through 26. If you'll make your way in your Bible to Acts chapter 3, we'll read the passage here in just a few moments. People lie. It turns out they lie a lot. Now, I know that doesn't come as a surprise to you, but there was a classic study done on the frequency of lying by psychologists in recent decades. And it focused on face-to-face interactions, and they used a control study group of students as well as volunteers from the community around a university. In the study, community members averaged telling one lie per day. The college students averaged two lies per day. And the top 1% of liars that they called the prolific ones uh, lied 17 times per day. So researchers found that lying is commonplace. There are a lot of different reasons people do it. Some people lie because they're telling some type of story that they think is funny and they're trying to elicit some type of response. People lie because they want to protect themselves or someone else from something that they've done or something that has taken place. People lie in order to present themselves more favorable for personal gain so someone will think a certain thing about them. Sometimes people lie to hurt other people and to cast them in a bad light. There's an old saying that some people will lie to you when the truth would fit better, and that's certainly the case. Uh, There are definitely some people like that, but even so, studies have been interesting because they also show that while there are prolific liars, or what we would call habitual liars, that the majority of people are relatively honest, fairly trustworthy. And that means that we have to develop our discernment in order to tell what is and what isn't. I say this to draw a contrast. And the contrast that I draw is that God is the ultimate promise keeper. And while all of us have lied or shaded the truth or put ourselves in a better light maybe than we should have been, there's never been a time when God told a lie. Or where God promised something and it didn't come to pass. Or there's nothing that God has promised that won't come to pass. Somebody counted up that there are 8,810 promises in the Bible from God for us. The old preacher Vance Havner said we're sitting on the premises when we ought to be standing on the promises. A promise is a declaration or an assurance that something is going to come to pass that a particular thing is going to happen and i want you to know that a promise that you receive from god or a promise that you read in his word can be depended on with absolute confidence and certainty you don't need any discernment to know whether or not he's telling you the truth you 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 don't have to worry that you're getting led down a stray path if god said it it can be counted on and it's for your good God's promised all sorts of things in his word. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am your shield. I will strengthen you. I will go before you. I will help you. I will give you rest. I will forgive you when you confess your sins. I will withhold no good thing from you. I will be your guide. I will work all things together for your good. And that's just a small sample of the promises of God contained in the Scripture 
that remind us of his faithfulness. As we approach Acts chapter 3 and verse 17 through 26, we're in the midst of a sermon. Peter, in fact, is preaching his second sermon. He took the healing of the lame man at the gate called Beautiful as an opportunity to preach Jesus. And he said that God did this healing and God has glorified his servant Jesus. The religious establishment had denied Jesus and had denied the holy and the righteous one, as Peter puts it, and killed Jesus. But God raised him from the dead. And these apostles who were speaking and ministering and healing, they were witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. And they wanted the world to know. So Peter continues his sermon in verse 17, and he's in a place called Solomon's Colonnade. I'll come back to that in just a moment. But we begin now in Acts chapter 3 and verse 17. And now, brothers and sisters, I know you acted in ignorance just as your leaders also did. In this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets, that his Messiah, this is the Christ, would suffer. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, whom, uh, who he has a, been appointed for you as the Messiah. Heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about through his holy prophets from the beginning. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to everything he tells you. And everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. Now verse 24, In addition, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham, And all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. Peter's preaching in Solomon's colonnade. The, Joseph, uh, the Jewish historian Josephus said that the colonnade was a porch about the temple. It overlooked the deep valley, was supported by walls of 400 cubits made of four square stone and very white. The length of each stone was 20 cubits and the breadth six. The work of King Solomon who first founded the whole temple. So imagine Peter having just had this experience with the lame man at the gate called Beautiful. A man who had been lame since birth and yet they spoke to him and healed him by the miraculous power of Jesus and God blessed them by healing the man. The man was excited. That probably is a little bit of an understatement, but he went into uh, the area leaping and his legs were right and he was celebrating. And Peter says that his faith has made him well. Now we come to an emphasis on the Messiah in verse 18 and verse 20. The word Messiah is, in the Greek is Christos. It literally means anointed. The Hebrew word for Messiah is Mashiach, also meaning the anointed one. So the Greek word Christos is translated in English as Christ. And prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament were anointed and they were consecrated for whatever it was that they were being called to do. 
But what was unique about the Christ is that he came as the fulfillment of all three of the offices, prophet, priest, and king. And in this passage before us today, we will see how the prophet, uh, what the prophecies of the promise of the Messiah were foretold. We're going to see how the promise of Messiah was realized, and we're going to see how the promise of Messiah is to be received. So let's begin with the first. The promise of Messiah was prophesied. Verse 17 says, And now, brothers and sisters, I know you acted in ignorance just as your leaders also did. Now the people acted in ignorance because they did not recognize who Jesus was. The leaders who were chiefly responsible for that were the priests and the scribes, and they took the lead in accusing Jesus before Pilate, and they put him in that situation. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 8, Had they known him for who he truly was, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And they called for the execution of Jesus because they were ignorant of God's eternal plan. Yes, they had been given the promise. Yes, they had been given the words of the prophets. Yes, it all had been foretold. But yet, because of their spiritual blindness, they remained in their sin. They thought they were okay, and they thought that they did not need this man because he was not the genuine Messiah. Now, it is helpful to understand here the Hebrew concept of unintentional sins as opposed to sins of willful defiance. Sin is sin, and there are going to be consequences for sin. Before these sins of ignorance, under the law, there was an offering that was a potential to be offered in order to remove guilt for sin. But for willful, brazen disobedience... The person was without that offering. They were without an option. They were really without hope. And in Peter's audience, there would have been people who varied in their unbelief and their lack of understanding based on whatever their perspective was. Undoubtedly, there were people who understood the whole story. They knew how it had gotten to that point. They believed what they believed or they denied what they denied. And then there would have been people that were relatively probably nonchalant and fairly cultural about how they understood these things and probably not all that intensely involved. The Jews as a people did not recognize Jesus as a Messiah, mainly because of their spiritual blindness, but also because of the fact that they were expecting a military conqueror who would overthrow the Roman government as an earthly king, not as a suffering servant. So you see the difference between a conquering king and a suffering servant. A conquering king is easy to understand. The greatness of it, the power, the majesty of it all. But now here's this humble king who has arrived as a suffering servant. And there's some ideas in Scripture that emphasize this. Uh, The emphasis in context is pointing to the Jews in Jerusalem and their religious leaders for missing what they should have known. The Gentiles were also given culpability because they were lawless. And then the suffering of the Messiah was furthermore bound up in god's sovereign plan and his purposes so this was not by accident this is not god acting in a reactionary way this is god acting according to his purpose that had been foretold through the prophets and then ultimately as we looked at last week all of us are in part guilty for the crucifixion of jesus now someone pointed out that if you examine the organized religions of the world you'll find that a typical pattern. And the typical pattern of those that are not uh, biblical Christianity is that 
a leader will rise up and that leader will rise up claiming that they have received some type of new revelation that their version of God has told them something and therefore they're going to begin this religion or they're going to start down this path so you have the leader and then you have the plan but in Jesus that was reversed the plan was foretold centuries before and then Jesus was the realization of the plan so Jesus did not come unannounced with a new plan Jesus came to fulfill the eternal plan of God and he was introduced long before he arrived in fact writing from the 14th century to the 4th century BC prophets revealed all sorts of things they said that the Messiah was going to be conceived of a virgin he would be born in Bethlehem he would heal the blind and the deaf he would enter into Jerusalem on a lowly beast of burden on a donkey he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver he would be unfairly judged and condemned to die he would be abandoned by his disciples and those who are the closest to him he would be crucified for our sins and be raised from the dead and he would be a light to the Gentiles and bring salvation to the whole world the prophecies confirmed the mission of Jesus foretold from the beginning of time to rule and to establish the kingdom of God to suffer and die and be raised on the third day to command the followers that believed in him to take the message of salvation to the nations to ascend back into heaven and to eventually return Peter says this in verse 18 but what God predicted through the mouth of all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer he has fulfilled in this way now the indication is that God caused the prophets to announce that all the prophets announced what God told them to announce and when it says that he has fulfilled it in this way he's saying he made it happen it was God who brought it about it was his purposes that were unfolded and he has fulfilled it in this way now note the emphasis on Moses in verse 22 and 23 Moses said the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers you must listen to everything he tells you and then verse 23 and everyone who does not listen to the prophet will be completely cut off from the people now let's make a connection here because the Jewish people would have known of the prophecy of Moses after all it was recorded in Deuteronomy 18 but here was the issue they thought that a prophet could be raised up who was not one in the same with the Messiah the prophet was not the Messiah and the Messiah was not the prophet and when Jesus came he was the embodiment of the Messiah also fulfilling that role and they should have known better but they didn't understand again because of their blindness and he says in addition in verse 24 all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him have also foretold these days and he said you're the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors in what he said to Abraham now what's the reference here to Abraham in the Old Testament Genesis 12 when the promise was given reiterated in Genesis 15 told again in Genesis 17 
And the emphasis is that God would make of Abram a great nation, and through that great nation, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Israel would not be blessed because of their size. Israel would not be blessed because they deserved it. It was simply the choice of God. It was the sovereign plan of God that he would use them. Through them, the Messiah would come, and this Messiah would be a suffering servant who would bless the Jews as well as the Gentiles and people all the way to the ends of the earth. So Peter is connecting these pieces, and he's reminding us that embedded in the promise to Abraham is the promise of Messiah who would bless all the world. Now, Peter would later write this in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 10 and following. He brings it all together. Here's what he says. Concerning this salvation, 1 Peter 1 and verse 10, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or the circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Now verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. The promise of Messiah was prophesied. But there's a second part here. The promise of Messiah was realized. Now, in the first part of his sermon... Peter identifies Jesus as the holy and the righteous one. He says he's the, he's the source of life. He said, you killed him, but God raised him from the dead. And faith is the key to forgiveness and eternal life. So he says in verse 26 that God raised up his servant and sent him first to you, remember, first to the Gentiles, or to the Jews, and then, then to the Gentiles, to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. So the servant Messiah was first sent to God's people and then to the world. And the arrival of Jesus Christ is explained in the Gospels. Matthew starts with Joseph's perspective and Luke starts with Mary's perspective. Listen to what Matthew chapter 1 and verse 22 says. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. The prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Luke chapter 2 and verse 11, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, Messiah, the Lord. John 1 and verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then he says this in verse 16, John does, in chapter 1. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So this is good news. As Peter's standing there and they're wondering, how did this lame man get healed? And they're attributing the power to the disciples and what they had done. Peter says to them, listen, don't look at us like we did this. How could you not see that this is the power of God? This is not us. So he points to the illustration of the healing. And then he says, let me tell you more about this Messiah. And let me tell you how you should respond to him. I think about what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4 when he said in the fullness of time, when the time had come to completion, in other words, that God sent his son, born of a woman or a virgin, born under the law to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. At the end of one age and at the beginning of another, 
at the time that God seemed right, seemed right to God in his will, God sent forth his son. Do you know God's always on time? I'm not always on time. I'm, I'm mostly on time because I believe it's an issue of respect for other people. Things happen. Circumstances take place when you can't be. But it's a good thing to keep your word and to be on time. But there's never a time when God is late. Sometimes we think that he's late. We think that he's not answered. And we're, we're waiting and we're wondering, well, when is God going to answer? When is God going to move? When is God going to give me this prayer request that I'm asking for? And all the while, God is working for us on our behalf. And the Israelites waited for the promised Messiah. But you know what happened to some of them? They gave up hope. They got impatient. I mean, come on, people. Can you imagine waiting for four centuries for something to happen? We have a hard time waiting a few days or a few weeks. We have a hard time waiting a few minutes if the appointment's not going like we think it should be going. And here they were waiting. And we wait a lot, but many of us don't wait very well. And the early followers of God held on to the promise of what was to take place in the Messiah. The promises that God made to Abraham, the Bible says that he waited. You know what Hebrews chapter 6 verse 15 says? It says that Abraham waited patiently. He waited patiently. The promise was made to Isaac, and he waited. And to Jacob, and they waited. The promises were repeated to the Israelites again and again. And what did God do in the backdrop? God was preparing the world through the Jews by giving them the promise and giving them his word. God's preparing the world through the Romans by giving them the Pax Romana, the time of peace. God was preparing them through the Greeks in this common language that would take root. And while the Jews were waiting, God was preparing so let me just apply this to your life for a moment in a much more micro scale, a much more personal level. Maybe you're waiting on God right now and there's something that you don't see the end of it. You might be going through a trial, through a time of difficulty. You got some heavy stuff going on in your life and you're looking for answers and you're praying and you're seeking the Lord and it feels like you're just out here by yourself. I want to encourage you because God is at work for your good and for his glory. And you will see it in his timing. So wait on him in faith. The fullness of time in Galatians chapter 4 means when the time was right. Jesus came at just the right time in the redemptive plan of God after the world had been prepared for him. The time was right because the years that Daniel had prophesied were drawing to a close. Jesus arrived during the Pax Romana that I mentioned when the world was united by commerce and they were united by uh, political government even though it had great difficulties in it. There were these networks of trade routes that provided access to the world. Church, none of that was by accident. God was giving them a way to spread the gospel and for churches to be planted and for Christ to be magnified. The realization of the Messiah and the birth of Jesus and in his finished work also marked the end of the old covenant and the beginning of the new covenant. Now, the old covenant was 
obsolete in the sense that it was it was fulfilled in jesus he's the fulfillment of the law he said he came not to abolish the law and the prophets but rather to fulfill them and when jesus came he came as the realization of the messiah that had long been promised and through jesus we receive adoption as sons now it's interesting in galatians chapter 4 that Paul shifts metaphors from a child growing to maturity and receiving the inheritance at the time that was set by his father to a child who was adopted. Now let's think about this idea of adoption, especially as it related to the Roman law. Under the Roman law, adopted children had the same legal status and inheritance rights as biological children. He does not say here that the Jews are the biological children and the gentiles are the adopted children you say why does that matter well certainly the jews were the chosen people they had been given the promise and they had been given the prophets and they had been given the structure of worship and god had related to them in a personal way but at the same time they were not saved because of their heritage they were saved just like we are by faith Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness before the law was ever even given. So God's plan for salvation has always been by faith. It's not as though God had a plan for salvation that was under works and it was under the law and now God has a plan of salvation that is, that is by faith. Hey, it's always been by faith. And the function of the law was to reveal the holiness of God and the sinfulness of people. Because there was nobody who could fulfill the law except Jesus the sinless God-man. And here he continues on with this idea of adoption. And he continues in verse 6 to say, and because you are children, Galatians 4 and verse 6, God has spent the, sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Spirit connects us with the Son as fellow children of God. We receive adoption as sons. We do not earn adoption as sons and the operative principle is faith it's faith in jesus and timing is everything in fact some things that are worthwhile take a lot more time consider this an oak tree takes 40 years to mature probably true with a lot of men as well you'll get that later Food prepared in the kitchen and, a, and cooked in a conventional oven. It's better than the microwave. It takes 5 to 20 years for a saltwater pearl to form. And the longer the years, the bigger the pearl. You can raise a barn up in a day, but it takes months to build a beautiful house. The timing of God is perfect. Always on time. And the promise of Messiah was realized. And that brings me to the third and final idea. And that is the promise of Messiah is to be received. Now let's look at verse 19. Therefore repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. Repent and turn back. Be converted. So what does Peter do? He tells them about their sin and then he calls them to repent. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. Paul did the same thing in his ministry. And he said in Acts chapter 26 and verse 20, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. 
So the book of Acts emphasizes this idea of repentance in at least six different passages. To repent in salvation is to change your mind about sin, to turn from that sin, and to change your mind about Jesus, and to turn to Jesus. So it's a turning away from what is wrong. It's a turning away from what is dark. It's a turning away from lostness. It's a turning away from rebellion. And now it's to turn to the light. It's to turn to all that is right. It is to turn to the one who is our hope. And he is the Christ. And we turn to him having repented of our sins. We believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we are converted. But now please note this. Repentance is not a work that earns salvation, but rather it is a posture that receives salvation. Let me say it again. Repentance is not a work that earns salvation. Repentance is a posture that receives salvation because it turns in faith to the one who's to be believed in. Turn back and be converted. The idea is to turn back from your wicked ways and run to God. There's been a parallel drawn to this of the refuge cities or the cities of refuge in the Old Testament that were under the law. There are certain things that govern them and certain characteristics of those refuge cities. But when we think about it in that way, Jesus is the refuge for repentant sinners. And Peter is boldly issuing a warning to the people to repent and be converted. Now, I've preached over the years thousands of sermons. I've heard probably thousands more because I listen to a lot of preaching. I've been in a lot of preaching environments. And I only remember, just transparently, other than sermons I've preached, uh, I only remember a handful of sermons really clearly from over the years. Now, I also only remember a handful of meals that I've had, but I still eat. So it's not a matter of remembering the meal, but I say that to highlight this one sermon that I heard. Somewhere about 30 years ago, there was a preacher who came to our church, and his name was James Smith. He's from West Central Florida. And he was an evangelist, and he preached a message one night entitled, When the Lights Go Out on the Road to Hell. In that message, he had a light board across the front of the pulpit, and it was just a board about yay big, and it had these large lights across the front of it. And as he was working his way through his sermon, he would talk about the different lights that would steer us away from hell and would steer us to heaven. So, for example, you might have a praying grandmother. And that praying grandmother had shared the gospel with you. She had loved you. She had told you about Jesus. She had wanted you to get saved. And you never got saved in her lifetime. So when she died, that one light went out. And he had unscrewed that light slowly. And that light would go dark. And then he got all the way down to the end of that light board. And when that last light was unscrewed, the entire house lights went down and it was pitch black dark and you could not see a thing. And let me tell you, it was a powerful illustration of what happens when the lights go out on the road to hell. And I want you to know that what Peter is sharing here is a light to the people. And he's saying, listen, this is the way to walk. This is the Messiah. He's the one who can forgive you. He's the one who can give you peace. He's the one who can give you hope. He is now back in heaven with God the Father. He is the only one who is to be believed in. And he is sounding this warning to them with boldness. And he's telling them about their sin. And I think today 
We've gotten so soft and milk toast in so many churches that we don't want to offend people. So we're telling people how to have a better marriage and how to improve their finances and how to build their relationships. Well, let me tell you something, church. You can improve your marriage from a worldly standpoint and you can improve your finances and you can improve your relationships and you can still go to hell. That's not going to get you there. Only the Christ will take you to heaven. And we need to be bold in that to tell people that there are sins that need to be wiped out. There are sins that need to be blotted out. Because after all, remember, we're all liars. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we need redemption so that we have his righteousness. Now this idea here of your sins being wiped out or blotted out is the idea of wiping ink off of a document. In those days, ink did not have acid content, so it could be wiped off with a damp cloth. And what God does is he wipes our record of sin just like that when we believe in Jesus. Because Jesus is our propitiation. Jesus is our salvation. And we look to him. And in verse 20, he says that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. Now, I think there's refreshing now in the presence of the Lord as well as refreshing in a day to come because it's referencing when Jesus will return and he'll rule the world in righteousness. But where does revival begin? Where does renewal begin? It begins at an individual level. That's where it begins. Can I control the spiritual attitude of a group of believers? I can influence it, but I can't control it. Only the Spirit of God is at work there in doing that. I, I can't control a, a worldwide revival, which we all would pray for. But I can step into the renewal that God has for me personally. There was a, a, a preacher by the name of Gypsy Smith. He was a revival uh, preacher, evangelist. And they asked him, how do you start revival? And here's what he said. Go home, lock yourself in your room, kneel down in the middle of your floor, draw a chalk mark all around yourself, and ask God to start revival inside of that mark, inside of that circle. And when he's answered your prayer... The revival will be on. In verse 21, it says, Heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about through his holy prophets from the beginning. These prophets often spoke of the Messianic golden age of the time of the millennium. And following the return of Jesus and all the things that will take place with that, but he's saying in the meantime, Jesus is going to remain in heaven until the time of the restoration of all things. That Jesus ascended back into heaven to the right hand of God the Father. He lives to make intercession for you. He's praying for you. He cares about you. And may he be magnified in our lives because we understand who he is. 
And Peter says in verse 26 that God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. So Moses had said the Lord God would raise up a prophet. So God raised up Jesus. Many of the people listened and believed. Now let me give you a spoiler alert of what's coming in chapter 4. You remember what happened the day of Pentecost when they started communicating the gospel amongst themselves and different languages were being spoken and people were understanding that language and they were understanding the gospel and they were believing and thousands got saved? Well, you know what's going to happen when Peter wraps up the sermon here? Thousands more get saved. It's the power of the Spirit. It's God at work. It's the power of the gospel that's at work. And that's what we long for. So I say to you in closing, the Messiah blesses all people who turn away from their evil ways. And God is always true to his promises. In fact, our trust is never misplaced when our trust is in God. Now, the name Francis Havergal might not mean that much to you, but Francis Havergal was a noted hymn writer who loved the Word of God and who loved God himself. As the story goes, she was dying of cancer at the young age of 43. Havergal asked a friend who was standing by her bed to read for her from the 42nd chapter of Isaiah in verse 6. And when the friend was reading that sixth verse, and here's how it goes, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I have taken you by the hand and kept you, Havergal, stopped her friend from reading any further and in a voice barely above a whisper she said called held by his hand kept and then she said I can go home on that and she did go home on that closing her eyes in that moment and stepping out into eternity we are called, held by his hand, and kept. That is grace upon grace. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. I don't know where you are today spiritually. Maybe you're walking closely with Christ, and he's being magnified on the altar of your life as we sang earlier. Just continue on that path and be encouraged and know that God is with you. He'll help you. He'll show you the way. But maybe you're not. Maybe you're not part of the family of God. Maybe you've not been adopted through repentance and faith. Today would be a good time to repent and to be converted. Today would be a good time to meet the Lord. Whatever your need is, Christ is the answer. He's your hope. Will you trust him?